Now, I'm not sure if you all know this about me, but my grandfather on my dad's side uh, was in ministry uh, for the most of his adult life. And while he was in ministry, there was one particular Sunday where he had the opportunity to preach at a church. And while he was preaching, my aunt, who uh, was young at the time, a young girl, uh, was listening to him preach and had had enough. So she decided to stand up in, her, in the pew, and she said this, Dad, you've said enough. It's time to go home now. <laughs> now, you can imagine how well that went over in that moment, Okay. But you see, this, this desire to stand up and preach is something that God begins to burn in the hearts of people who've been changed by Jesus. Uh, when I became a believer uh, later in my teenage years at the age of 18, I would go to UK basketball games at Rupp Arena and I would see 20,000 people. And I would just beg, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to preach right now? Just give me the microphone. I want to preach the gospel to these people. You see, this desire to stand up and preach is something that God puts in the hearts of men and women to see people come to a saving knowledge of his son. And when we get to Acts chapter 2, we see Simon Peter who does exactly that. Full of the Holy Spirit, he stands up and he preaches. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. And turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As you're turning there, we're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family in a sermon series entitled Sent. Last week we saw how the Holy Spirit fell uh, upon the disciples and then God began to speak through them the heart languages of the nations who are gathered there in Jerusalem to hear the gospel. And as these people from all over the world are hearing their native tongue, hearing their native language spoken in Jerusalem, we see verse 11, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues, our own languages. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. The scripture says, they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, 
ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The day of Pentecost has finally arrived. The population of Jerusalem has tripled in size as people have descended upon the city to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, or as we call Pentecost. On this special day, the Holy Spirit fell upon the 120 disciples that are gathered together. Men and women begin speaking various languages of the nations who are gathered together in the city for the feast. Now this moment's never happened before, y'all. Some people are so confused as to what's happening, verse 12, they can only chalk it up to one thing. They're drunk. They've had too much wine. These mockers begin ridiculing these disciples. They're hearing these foreign languages spoken by these Galileans. Can you imagine for a moment that you're at a cattle auction down in Clanton? And as you're at this cattle auction, these 120 farmers, they're no longer speaking with a lower Alabamian accent. They begin speaking foreign languages. They begin speaking Swahili and Russian and Spanish and Portuguese and, and, and all of these languages. And then all of a sudden, people are like, what is going on here? These guys are drunk. There's something wrong. They've had too much moonshine. What is happening at this cattle auction? But then there's a group of people from each of these countries being represented, and they hear their native language. They hear someone speaking their language. And all of a sudden, their hearts are open like, oh my goodness, they're speaking about the Lord in my heart language. That's kind of what's happening in Acts chapter 2. We see where the Spirit falls upon his people. And these Galileans, these uneducated guys from the northern part of Israel, these fishermen, these blue-collar workers, these guys who are not linguistic geniuses are all of a sudden speaking these foreign languages. And what we see unfolding as God's kingdom is being revealed is that God is making a new kind of people. A people who are multilingual, multi-ethnic, and multicultural. A people who are united around Jesus and the gospel. And as you and I survey the landscape of the world around us and how the gospel is on the move throughout Southeast Asia and North Africa and South America and even here in the United States, the gospel is moving forward and God is making a new kind of people. 
that we're not a homogenous kind of people who have the same skin color and vote the same way. We're not a group of people of the same types of income or, or, or backgrounds in which we believe certain things. No, we're a people who've been changed by Jesus. And we look different and we talk different. And it's a beautiful picture of the kingdom. And so as this is taking place here, Simon Peter stands up and says, there's something bigger happening here. There's something bigger than just an early morning happy hour that's not happening here. There's something far more significant taking place in this moment. Well, what is it? Well, this morning, I want you to see what's happening in Acts 2 and what this means for us. Let me show you these three things. So the first is this. I want you to see God's promise is being kept. God's promise is being kept. What was happening in Jerusalem was fulfillment of what God said would happen 800 years earlier through the prophet Joel, verse 17. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. You see, in Joel's day, God was foretelling of a coming day when the spirit would come upon people who are both young and old, men and women. And what are they going to be doing? Verse 18, they will prophesy. They're going to preach. They're going to herald. They're going to proclaim what? They're going to be proclaiming the gospel. This is what we see happening here in verse 11. Well, when is this going to happen? Well, we see here in the text, verse 17, in the last days. Now, this is a phrase, it's a reference to a time in which God's promises would be fulfilled, when the story reaches its climax. Well, as of today, y'all, we are living in the last days. It's the season of time after the ascension of Jesus, but before he returns, You see, Peter is interpreting this moment in Acts 2 as the last days leading up to the last day. You see, there's coming a day, the prophet Joel says, and he's pointing forward to, as verse 20, the day of the Lord. Well, how do we know when this day is going to take place? Well, Peter tells us there's going to be some signs. Verse 19. God is going to display wonders in the heavens above and the earth below. The sun will turn dark. The moon will turn to blood. Peter and Joel are referencing these terrifying, earth-shattering events that are coming at the end of the age. But for followers of Jesus, y'all, we're not scared of those days. We're not terrified of the last day. You see, every day is one day closer to Jesus coming back for his church. We're not a people who are afraid of the last day. We're not terrified of coming judgment. Why? Because Jesus took our judgment at the cross. The worst thing that has ever happened to you happened 2,000 years ago. All of your sin was nailed to Christ. The judgment that you deserved was placed upon him so that in him and through him you are free. You are forgiven. You're washed. You're sanctified. In fact, one of the primary thrusts of the New Testament is to continually remind you of who you are in Christ. It's reminding you of what God has done for you through his son. And as those who have been bought with precious blood, you can then walk forth in the victory that's yours in Jesus. These last days is the season that we're in, anticipating the return of Christ. But we know it's leading up to the last day when ultimately God will blow the whistle, we'll all get out of the pool, and God will sort out everything. But we also see happening here 
is that God is making a new kind of community. These people who are from multiple cultures and languages and ethnicities and nations, that God is working inclusively to give his spirit to both genders, people of all ages, all social classes, all skin colors, all ethnicities. Verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all people. You see, in this new kingdom, there's no distinction between those who get the spirit and those who don't. In the Old Testament, it wasn't that way. The Holy Spirit would, would come and he would go. He would fall upon certain people, but not others. But not in the new covenant. When we get to the New Testament, we see where the Spirit comes. He stays, he abides, he remains. And what's beautiful is that there's not a social class in the kingdom based upon who gets the Spirit and who doesn't. Paul said it like this in Galatians 3.28. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, the gospel is for everybody. You see, a seven-year-old who believes the gospel has as much of the Holy Spirit as I do. And the 88-year-old who believes the gospel has as much of the Holy Spirit as you do. You see, the beauty is that the gospel is for everybody. Anybody can get in on this. This is the point he's making here in the text. Verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can get in on this. The qualifier is this. You must first realize that you don't deserve to be there. You must first realize that you're a sinner before you can be saved. The question is, have you banked your soul upon Christ? Have you believed the gospel? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in him? If not, would you do it today? You're not promised tomorrow. We don't know when our own last day is going to be. And if you don't know Christ today, turn from your sin and trust in him. He went to the cross and gave his life for you. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of all of your sins. But Kenneth, you don't know all the things that I've done. No, God does. And yet he goes on record and makes a way through his son's shed blood to forgive you of all of your sin. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that when you trust in Christ, you're forgiven and you're made new. And this gospel is for you if you will trust in him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You'll be rescued. It's a promise from God to you. Believe the gospel see, God promised through the prophet Joel of a coming day when the Spirit would come upon his people. And so here is Simon Peter, full of the Spirit. He stands up and preaches, God has kept his promise. The Spirit has come upon the people of God to preach the gospel of God, which is the second thing we see happening in Acts 2. Number two, God's gospel is being preached Peter seizes the moment and he uses Joel 2 as a springboard into the gospel. Well, what does he point to? I'll put this in your notes. These things that are clearly here in the text. First, Jesus' life. Jesus' life. He starts with Jesus' life. He names his miracles, verse 22, his signs, his wonders. The supernatural works of Jesus were God's means of confirming Jesus' deity. Jesus performed these miracles, not only pointing to the way that the new kingdom will be, but he's also here declaring who he is as God. Now, do you all recall our sermon series on the move through the gospel of Mark? There's a lot of groaning right now. 
Kenneth, how can we ever forget? Took forever. Do you remember the works of Jesus? Healed the sick, the blind, the lame. Here's Jesus who cast out demons, walked on water, calmed storms, raised the dead. He performed all these miracles. We see who he is, proving himself as the true savior of the world. You see, this is God's way of revealing his son really is God come in the flesh. In fact, in Luke's gospel, which is volume one and Acts is volume two, he points to Jesus' life and ministry as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And these Jews, they knew this, y'all. Verse 22, as you yourselves know. You see, there's no denying the miracles of Jesus. Even these unbelieving Jews knew what Jesus had done, and they could not deny it. But then Peter pivots and points to Jesus' death. Verse 23, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Peter points to two things that are being held in tension all throughout Scripture. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We see both here. Peter says that Jesus died because it was God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge and because Peter's audience crucified him with the help of the Romans. You see, from eternity past, God predetermined that Jesus would come and die on the cross. You see, the cross did not surprise Jesus, and it was the very reason that he came. You see, the cross of Christ was the predestined plan of God. God predestined his son's death in eternity past before time began. And yet, verse 23 the Jews are responsible for coordinating the execution of Jesus. In fact, we're going to see later responsibility is placed upon the Jews for the death of Christ. Acts 3.15, Peter would stand in Solomon's colonnade and tell the Jews who were gathered, you killed the author of life. Acts 4.10, Peter tells the Jewish leaders, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. In Acts 5.30, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. The Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus. And yet over and over and over, Jesus told his disciples, it's necessary that the Son of Man go and suffer and be persecuted and die. Okay, so we see these two things taking place. We see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Which is it? Yes. Both are in play. We see where God holds man responsible for his evil actions while simultaneously being sovereign over those actions. And it does not diminish his sovereignty. Rather, it magnifies it. It points to his significance and worth of who he is in his omnipotence and in his power, that he is one who is sovereign over all things and yet allowing man the responsibility to be held accountable for their actions. Scripture holds these two truths in tension. 
Charles Spurgeon said it like this. They are two parallel lines that meet together somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God where all truth springs forth. Peter is placing the responsibility of Jesus' death at the feet of the Jews, and yet simultaneously, he's pointing to the sovereignty of God. But let's not miss this. You and I are also responsible for the death of Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. You see, in our fallen nature, you and I commit the same sin Adam and Eve did back in Genesis 3. When you and I deliberately choose to disobey the Lord, we're identifying with our first parents, and we are showing we would have made the exact same decision. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that God has made a way through his son to absolve us and to forgive us and to make us clean through him. That fully aware of our disobedience through the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, we are made right with God. You see, this is what makes the cross of Christ so incredible, is that Jesus was nailed to the cross for your sin. All of it. And all of the sin that you can't even remember right now that you've committed, he died for all of it. His blood is sufficient to cover all of it. And he died for my sin and for the sin of the world. But you know what? He didn't stay dead. Jesus defeated death. We see Jesus' resurrection. Look at verse 24. God raised him up. Peter then goes through these three proofs of Christ's resurrection. And I put this in your notes. We see the resurrection is proven by the power of God, the plan of God, and the people of God. It's right there in your notes. Those are three free words for you. The power of God, the plan of God, and the people of God. First, the power. Verse 24. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Death could not Hold Jesus down. Jesus has authority over death. In Mark chapter 5, we see where Jesus goes to the home of a dead 12-year-old girl. And as she's lying there, he walks in, takes her by the hand, and says, Talitha Kuhn, I say to you, arise. And up comes that little girl. In John chapter 11, Jesus goes to the tomb of his good friend Lazarus. They open up the tomb, and Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. And out comes Lazarus. And for three days, Jesus was put into a borrowed tomb because death could not hold him down. He is the victor over death. And because Jesus defeated death, so too will all who trust in him. Our hope is in him and death does not have the final word over you. Those who trust in him, you are alive and well both now and forever. The resurrection is true and the resurrection is proven by the power of God. We see the second thing happening in here in the text is the resurrection is proven by the plan of God. I love how Peter sets up his cross reference of Psalm 16. Uh, look right there in the text, verse 25. For David says of him, okay, time out. David says of who? Who's, who's David talking about? Well, it's Jesus. 
Peter is connecting David's writings in the Old Testament to Jesus. 800 years before the birth of Christ, David is writing about Jesus. It says, then quoting from Psalm 16, Peter points to the resurrection. He says, for he will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay, verse 27. Jesus' body would not rot. He would not go down to Hades, another word for death. He would not experience ultimate death. Why? Because King David said, there's going to be one who's going to sit on my throne. And this one, he's not going to... He's not going to see death all the way. He's not going to go down to Hades. He's not going to stay dead. He was already pointing forward to the future resurrection. But this is not true about David. We know that David is not talking about himself. And here Peter says, verse 29, because his tomb is with us. This is a reminder to the Jews that David's body had not been raised. He's still dead. David's not talking about himself, verse 29. He's dead and we know where his tomb is. A couple of years ago, Christy and I had a chance to go to Israel, and we got to go to a place called the Tomb of David. It's the location. It's not far from the upper room where the disciples met uh, for the Last Supper, and it's not, it's not far from the place where the Holy Spirit fell here at Pentecost, Acts chapter 1. And we got to go into the room where David's body is in a, uh, a, 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 a it's not a sarcophagus, but it's like a, a coffin made of concrete. And there are rules that say you're not allowed to take pictures. So I just was like, okay. I just took a picture, but the Lord was like, Kenneth. And so the reason you're not seeing a picture on the screen is because it was so blurry. Okay, so I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Shouldn't take a picture. <laughs> um, but I've been there. And... David's still dead, but Jesus ain't. He's alive. And here's Peter saying, you can go to David's tomb. He's dead. Psalm 16 ain't about him. There's another one whose body would not see decay, and his name is Jesus. He's the one who rose victoriously from the grave. He's pointing forward, David is, to another who is Jesus, who's the fulfillment of the plan of God. Thirdly, the resurrection is proven by the people of God. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. The disciples saw Jesus resurrected. They touched him. They talked to him. They ate with him. Jesus was alive and they knew it to be true. And here at Pentecost, Peter's preaching the gospel. He's pointing to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, this is the gospel. This is the power of God unto salvation. This is the gospel that he's standing up to preach. And may I say to you, this is what we got to do the same as well. This is the gospel that you and I, we stand up on the ball fields, in the classroom, at your kitchen table, is that we proclaim this gospel. We are a gospel people. Of people who have been changed by the good news of Jesus, who lived that life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, rose again on the third day, and changes everything about us. This is the gospel that we rally around every Sunday when we gather together and we sing the gospel, we pray the gospel, we preach the gospel, we study the gospel. We rally ourselves around this good news because this good news changes everything. 
And so let's make sure we are a good news people who are taking this good news to the nations and to our neighbors. This is a gospel that must be proclaimed. We've got to get this out. If Jesus has changed you, he compels you to stand up and preach. So we see here in the text, God's promise is being kept. God's gospel is being preached. And thirdly, God's son is ruling over all. Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God, verse 33, where he's ruling and he in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He has ascended on high. He is seated on his throne and he will sit at the right hand of the father until all of his enemies, verse 35, are a footstool under his feet. And what Peter is driving home is that these Jews who killed Jesus They're the enemies of God. They are responsible for the death of Jesus. And we'll see their response the next time we come back together around the book of Acts together as a faith family. But they realize, oh snap, I'm an enemy of God. And may I say to you, before you know Jesus, you and I, we were enemies of God. We were at enmity with him, James says. Where was hostility between us, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. You and I were in a lot of trouble before we met Christ. And yet, he's changed us. We've believed the gospel. He's changed us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit has spoken to our hearts, and we're no longer enemies of God. We're now friends of God through Christ. Question, have you believed the gospel? Have you trusted in Jesus? If you have not, today you can go from an enemy of God to a friend of God if you will humble yourself. You'll get low before God and say, Lord, I am broken and I'm a sinner, but I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you rose from the dead for me. And I'm giving my heart to you now. And I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. I'm yours For those of us in this room who've already believed the gospel, here's the homework I want to challenge you with from the text. It's your impact point. It's this. Let the whole world know with certainty that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Verse 36, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let them know. Let them know. Let everybody know. You got to stand up and preach. You got to communicate this on your ball team, right where God's planted you. You let them know of who Christ is and what he's done. At your gardening club, let them know. Proclaim to them the gospel. Tell them what Christ has done and invite them to believe. In your, in your, in your classroom, let them know. Stand up and preach. Let them know the gospel and what God has done for you in Jesus. In your office, let them know. Let people know about Jesus. I'm just thinking about these seven Sanford basketball players. If Cal had kept the gospel to himself, what's the future? Somebody has to preach. Somebody has to say something. And that's us, all of us. Male and female. Do you see in the text? The spirit falls both men and women. As we preach, we proclaim, we herald. Now the office of pastor 
is held for men. We're going to hold that as a church, 1 Timothy 3. We're going to stay there. But all of us are called to preach. All of us evangelize. We have a message to proclaim. We have something to tell the nations and our neighbors. Right now, I'm coaching three soccer teams. And I've got 41 players. I'm still learning names. And as I'm learning to know them and getting to know them, I'm telling them, guys, I love you. And some of them have no idea how to take that. (laughs) But I've been sharing the gospel with them at the end of every practice. Because I'm a pastor? No, it's because I'm a Christian. And God has put you in a world to point people to his son. And so from this point on, until Jesus calls you home, let's stand up and preach. Let's herald, let's proclaim this gospel because someone else told us. Someone else fought through the uncertainty of how we would respond. They got over their own fears and had enough courage to tell us so that we might go and tell them. And you and I, we keep doing this until eventually Jesus will stand up and say, you said enough. It's time to come home. Let's keep going, church. Gossiping this gospel. Because it's the power of God and salvation for all of us.